0: Dear Father, thank you, Lord, for uh, our room of friends here tonight, many many women who have been a part of what we do here for so long now and have made a faithful uh, routine of being here and hearing your word and encouraging me by their regular attendance. And And I pray, Father, growing in the grace and knowledge of their Lord Jesus Christ as a result, um, it's an encouragement to me, Father, and I pray, Father, it's also uh, a glory to you that you would uh, call your men, your uh, children, the men and women in this room, uh, into a faithful pursuit of your word. That even as we may learn some uh, some things, a lot of things on a given week, but perhaps less on another. That that's not as important. I I suspect, Father, as it is that we are diligent, that we are dedicated to the pursuit, and that we um, we become a student of the word as a lifestyle, and not as a season or as a task. And I pray, Father, that uh, tonight. Uh, you would bless those hearts who have made that pursuit their own, that they have uh, given of themselves as you've asked them to do, and that what they would uh, experience here and in the weeks to come, and in general as they've uh, gone about following you and your word, that they'd they'd see the fruit of that, that we'd all see that, Father. Uh, that that fruit would be something that clearly demonstrates that you bless those who seek you in your word, and that that blessing, Father, would encourage us all the more. And that it would give us opportunities that we couldn't have had otherwise. And that it would uh, allow us to become that person that Christ would have been in our place for the needs of those around us. That we can represent you well. For Father, that's what this is all about. It's not about the pursuit of knowledge. It's not about an attendance for the sake of being counted or any of those things. Father, it's really about you and about what you choose to do in us through your word. So we ask, Lord, for that blessing tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Many times the proper interpretation of Scripture will depend on our understanding of the author's times and his circumstances. And that's particularly true in the case of the New Testament epistles. Those letters are Scripture, of course, so that means that the messages you find in the letters are timeless. And the truths are certainly applicable to all believers in all circumstances. But our application requires that you have an appreciation for the specific situation that was concerning the author when he wrote it and the audience he wrote it to. And I'm not saying eternal truths turn on circumstance, but I am saying that your proper response to those truths does turn to some degree on your circumstance. Last week, Paul was commanding Timothy to instruct men and women in the church in Ephesus in certain ways concerning their behavior, but his advice didn't just come out of thin air. Uh, It's not as though Paul had an idle day on his calendar and he just thought he'd rip a letter off to Ephesus with a few ideas about how they should live. It wasn't as if the church in Ephesus had no idea of how to conduct itself in the congregational meeting. After all, Paul had spent considerable time in this city during his journeys before he wrote the letter. And more than that, he left Timothy behind so that Timothy could lead the church concerning those things. So clearly the church was aware in some sense of how to conduct itself in everyday life. That's why when I taught on 1 Timothy 2 last week, I said that Paul's instructions must have been intended to address some specific issue or issues within the church as an antidote to false teaching that was happening in the church and was disrupting the normal things of the congregation. And based on his instructions, from what we've read, we can surmise a little about what those false teachers were advocating in their day. And we can also sense some of the political maneuvering that they were doing in Paul's absence in Ephesus. So as we ended last week, we had reached the point in Paul's instructions to the women in the congregation at the end of chapter two. And his instructions we noted last week were concerning how women behave in the context of the congregational meeting of a gathering of believers. That meeting time was a time of teaching And it was teaching for the benefit of the entire church. And in traditional fashion, that teaching would have been conducted by male teachers, male leaders in the church. Though a person may have been assigned to teach, nevertheless, it would also have been common in that day for members of the congregation to stand up and to offer their own ideas concerning the teaching, even in the midst of the congregation. There might have been a discussion even among some of the men in the room concerning what they had heard from the teacher, with the teacher still present in the room teaching. And I'll give you an example of this to show you that this was a common way in which teaching was conducted in Paul's day. And it's Paul's own example for when he arrived at a synagogue in Antioch during his own ministry. In Acts 13:13, 13, 13, we read this. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. It's a congregational meeting of the Jews on a Sabbath. He goes in and he sits down, which would indicate he joins the congregation. Of course he would. He's a traveler. He's not a normal participant there. He's a visitor. Moving on, it says in verse 15. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So there you have the official who read the law and was officiating in the room, opening it up for anyone in the room to stand up and teach concerning what had just been read out of Scripture. We don't do that today, obviously. It's not the normal practice in the church, though it could be. The point I'm making is that the nature of the congregational meeting was different in his day, and so the expectations for what could happen in the room were different. And then one more verse, verse 16, in response to that invitation, it says, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel... You who fear God, listen. And what follows in chapter 13 is Paul's extended teaching of who Jesus was in fulfillment of Scripture. And at least in that particular case, it's met with a positive response. And they ask him, would you come back next week and teach us again? That's the traditional understanding in Paul's day of how religious gatherings were structured, at least within a Jewish context. And although it's different for us today, I want you to have that background because that's the form and the decorum of what was naturally expected in the early church as well, for it came out of a Jewish-centered church. Obviously, over the centuries it's evolved. But at the early point, in the time of when this letter would have been written, in around the 60s AD, this would have been the expectations probably still. So with that in mind, we see Paul instructing the men in the church to pray together for the salvation of all men within society. We studied that last week. Paul's goal was to make sure that the church was acceptable and dignified within the culture, not a pariah. And as I said last time, it was a departure for Paul to advocate for this because traditional Jewish thinking sought to separate the Jewish people from the rest of society, not to associate with Gentiles, to be haughty. And they gave little consideration to non-Jews. They would never have prayed for the salvation of Gentiles we saw that the false teachers had a Judaizer quality to them. They came in trying to teach the law in the wrong way. From that, we surmised that they were advocating for a return to a more Judaistic lifestyle, even within the Gentile church, something you see written about in the other epistles. And Paul was trying to contend with that. And so he writes with this advice for men as a direct assault against what the false teachers were advocating. The false teachers apparently were trying to reimpose some sanctimonious attitude among the church in a very pharisaical way. And Paul says, no, I want you to break up that monopoly on piety. I want everyone out directing the church to pray openly in unity for all people, sidestepping any attempt by these false teachers to take over and monopolize the life of the body. Then Paul moved to countering false teaching that had been directed at the women in the church. And we left off at around a passage near the end there, beginning verse 11. We got a little ways into it, didn't get very far, so I'm going to read again from there. We're going to pick up in verse 11 again. And he says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, as I said, we covered the first part of these verses last week, so let's just begin with a, a little reminder of what we learned. First, we know Paul is speaking about a specific situation in the church body. The context here is that of a larger gathering of the church where men and women are gathering together, and a corporate gathering for teaching. And as I noted last week, this was a, a bit of a departure from traditional Jewish meetings usually in a synagogue men and women were segregated they might be listening to the same teaching but there was often a barrier put up between the two groups so that they were each occupying different halves of the same room and couldn't see each other if you've ever been to the wailing wall in jerusalem they still do this there there's a big sort of fabric fence that separates where the men go and where the women go as they approach the wall but in the church, in Ephesus, Paul is not advocating for any segregation. He accepts the prospect of men and women congregating together, for that's God's desire for the church. And that's an important development, especially for the women, obviously. But it also helps us understand Paul's instructions. He starts by asking that women, in that context, would accept teaching with entire submissiveness, which, as I noted last week from the Greek language, it could be translated whole obedience instead of entire submissiveness. Their whole obedience. This is where I want to start tonight. Why do you think Paul singles out women for that word? I mean, why didn't Paul say everyone must receive teaching in whole obedience? I mean, is he suggesting that only women need to concern themselves with the obedience to teaching? Clearly not. All of us are supposed to submit to leaders. All of us are supposed to obey the word of God. Therefore, we have to ask the question, why did Paul have to single out women in this respect? It means that I think that Paul singled out women because there's some failure going on among the women in Ephesus... In obeying their teachers that this is a correction that was necessary Therefore we might assume that the false teachers in the church had managed to gain some kind of audience among those women Perhaps some women in the church had come under the deceptive influence of these teachers And as a result these women were rejecting sound teaching from elders in the church more than that it would appear these women were then disrupting the congregational meeting by openly challenging the authority of the male teachers in that setting. Perhaps they spoke up to defend the teaching of the false teachers. Or perhaps they sought to offer their own contrary opinions to the teaching. But in any case, Paul specifically says that women may not teach and may not exercise authority in the gathering. And when he mentions teaching then, he's referring to this normal practice of congregational members offering teaching from their seated positions in the audience as we saw Paul do in Acts. It was acceptable for men to challenge the male teachers in that way, in a respectful fashion, but Paul says it is not acceptable for women to do the same. Women should not seek to compete with male teachers in matters of Scripture in a public setting. Paul says to do otherwise is to challenge the authority of the teacher and to exercise authority over male leadership. As we noted last week, the Greek word Paul uses here for exercise authority over. It's a phrase in English, but it's one word in Greek. To exercise authority over. It's a unique Greek word. It is not the common word for authority. In fact, it is so unique, this is the only place it occurs in the entire Bible. It means to take authority inappropriately. To domineer someone who has the rightful place of authority. So what Paul is saying is women may not domineer or usurp male authority, by rising up in the congregation to offer a contrary opinion. Instead, they should remain seated and, quote, quiet, Paul says. But the Greek word for quiet does not mean silence. There's actually a different word for that. It means literally to settle down, to remain still. Based on Paul's word choice, we have to conclude that a woman could respectfully ask a question in the congregation, or perhaps even participate in a discussion about the teaching, But the behavior of the women in the congregation may not cross a line into disrupting the gathering, challenging the authority of the teacher, or offering their own teaching in the context of a gathering to counter what's coming from the male teacher. And in fact, no one in the church has the right to do that, I should add. A man can't do that. A man cannot usurp the authority of an appointed leader in the church just because he's a man. We are all called to respect those who are appointed over us. Demonstrating submission may vary slightly from situation to situation, individual to individual, but generally speaking, men and women have a responsibility to respect those over them in leadership. And when we don't like what we're hearing, we all have appropriate ways to challenge teaching, which generally speaking is privately and under proper authority. The key in all cases is to maintain a hard attitude of submission and obedience to authority. So here again, why are women singled out? It must be because the women were the ones who needed to hear this advice in the case of Ephesus. We have to assume the women were openly challenging the men with an intent to undermine proper instruction. And knowing what we know about the activities of the false teachers, the women appear to have been deceived into this behavior. Perhaps some women were prompted by the false teachers to challenge the teaching of the elders. Perhaps the false teachers enlisted women in the congregation to defend their false teaching in front of the rest of the congregation. And if that's what happened, it would be very ironic... Because had the women listened to the church's authority instead of the false teachers, they would have known better. I believe that's why Paul cites the example that he gives next of Adam and Eve in the garden. In verse 13, he says, For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So look at how Paul supports his decision. In supporting his instructions, Paul makes an appeal to the circumstances of the fall in the garden. And, in fact, Paul makes two separate but related arguments from that situation. The first argument is, Paul reminds us that Adam was created first. And then following Adam, God made Eve to accompany the man. Paul says something very similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he's speaking on a somewhat related topic. 1 Corinthians 11.8, he says, For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for man's sake. So the biblical principle here is very simple, but it's very profound. God made a purposeful choice in the way that he went about the creation of mankind. God began with man and then later created woman from man. And his actions then reflect a certain point of view. He intended that man have authority over woman in family relationships, both in the marriage family and in the family of God. Eve was not responsible to God for Adam in the same way that Adam was responsible for Eve. So man was expected to assume a leadership role in the family and in the church. And leadership includes a responsibility to teach God's word within the family or at least ensure that good teaching is happening in the family. Paul cites man's God-given leadership role to support his argument that women must take care not to usurp the authority of men in the church and to do so is rebellion not only against the authority of the church but against God himself in the order that God instituted from creation perhaps Paul reminded the church of this principle because false teachers had sought to undermine it in the minds of the women in Ephesus and as a result of that teaching perhaps women then developed this rebellious heart that felt freedom to create disruption in the gathering worst of all They permitted deception to gain a foothold in the church. It's that last point, this idea of deception, gaining a foothold, that gives rise to Paul's second argument. So his first argument is there's a natural order to the authority God has established in the family and in the church, and it's reflected in the way he went about creation. It was his statement to mankind about where headship lies. But then secondly, in verse 14, Paul says that the fall of mankind began in a similar fashion. A woman was deceived by the serpent, Satan we know. She was misled by his lies, and so she followed after that teaching, teaching of contrary to the Word of God. And as a result of her mistake, she influenced her husband, who then made his own choice, to sin. So while woman isn't to blame for Adam's sin, her deception certainly played a role in the outcome. So Paul cites the history of the fall to illustrate the danger of the situation that's present in Ephesus. Women in the church... Being deceived by false teachers, those women adopting wrong views of the law or of other things. So, Paul warns that those women were in danger of repeating the mistake of woman in the garden by becoming a source of corruption in the body. Paul is not suggesting that women in general are congenitally predisposed to deception more so than men are. He's simply using the garden as an illustration. The church should remember the lesson of the woman in the garden to avoid making the same mistake again. That's his point. You could quote Paul this way. Once before, a woman fell under deception of the enemy, and by her deception, the enemy led man into sin. So, let's be on guard against the enemy pulling that trick on us again. It's interesting to consider why the false teachers targeted women, as they apparently did. Perhaps the false teachers targeted certain women that they happen to know were impressionable or easily influenced not because they were women, but just because of who they were. Or perhaps the false teachers felt that they were less likely to persuade men since the men might have felt more pressure to remain loyal to the teaching of the elders as fellow men in the church. But then we could ask the same question of Satan in the garden. Why did he target woman over Adam? It seems he knew the one that he could best use to bring down the both. Then Paul ends the chapter with instructions for women. Presumably... The church, and I would include the women in this Presumably, they don't want to repeat Eve's mistake They don't want to become victims of Satan's deception So in verse 15, Paul says But women will be preserved In other words, Paul's offering the church a way to avoid such a fate The word translated preserved In the Greek, it's just the word for saved The same word you would use for saved Paul means saved But he means it in the sense of protected from such an event Protected from such an outcome He's not speaking of being saved spiritually or being saved in an eternal sense. That's not the topic under discussion. Based on the context, you have to conclude. Paul's speaking of how a woman avoids the deception and the corruption that follows. How she can be saved from this situation that we're talking about. And so turning to the solution, Paul says, women should bear children continuing in faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint. That's a four-part recipe. But it's really the first part that gets our attention a woman seeking to avoid the mistake of Eve should bear children. And at first reading, that solution seems both antiquated and illogical. Women bear children by God's design. It's not as though there's another option. It's not like there's a choice in the matter, right? So how does it solve any problem for women to just do what God has already naturally made them to do? And for that matter, what do we say about women who don't marry or don't have children? Are we saying that they're sinning by acting contrary to Paul's instructions? I mean, that's where this discussion sometimes goes, leading us to wonder, what is Paul thinking? But here again, the answer is found by an understanding of the context and the circumstances in which Paul was writing. Remember, Paul was writing to contend with false teachers who were stirring up improper behavior among the women. And that corrupting influence was leading women to assert male authority in the gathering. Later in this same letter... We're going to learn that in a few cases, at least, women, both young and old, were also engaging in scandalous behavior outside their homes on the basis of some of this negative influence. So into that situation, Paul tells women to bear children, which I believe is a euphemism for fulfilling their unique and God-appointed role. It includes the bearing of children, obviously, but that's really just the tip of the iceberg. God endowed women with the privilege of bearing children. Women alone possess this ability. And with childbearing comes certain associated roles in the home and for the family. And so Paul's reference to childbearing is a reference to the whole lifestyle of attending to the woman's unique responsibilities. Responsibilities that cannot be delegated to men in the sense of childbearing, literally, obviously, but in the sense of the innate natural order of what God has intended for women. Therefore, finding contentment and purpose in fulfilling this role was one step in avoiding the deceptions of the enemy. How does this preserve women? Well, the enemy's success in deceiving women depended first upon stirring up discontent. In the garden, the enemy convinced Eve that by not being able to eat of this certain tree, she was missing out on something that she had rights to have, that she should want for herself, that God had been unfair in holding back something that she should have had. And in that discontented attitude, she took a second look at what God had told her to not be a part of. And now in Ephesus, the false teachers apparently had convinced the women that they should want for the role God had assigned to men, leaving them discontented in what they had already. Had the women been content serving in their God-given role, they would have not been as susceptible, I would argue, to such lies, to such schemes. Obviously, Paul's words don't then require that every woman bear children, or for that matter, it does not bar working outside the home as if that's ungodly. Remember, bearing children here represents something. It represents the unique God-given role of a woman in contrast to the role that God assigned to men. So a woman without children, for whatever reason, or a woman working outside the home, still has the same expectation. That woman must find contentment in the role God assigned to her, both in the home and in the church, while respecting the role God has assigned to men. Don't let the world tell you that you must have something beyond what God assigned, because discontent is the devil's playground. And then Paul finally adds that women should continue in faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint. And each of these expectations is, for the most part, self-explanatory. Looking at them briefly, though, faith just refers to the trust you put in God's wisdom and judgment. God assigned the roles. So we would do well to continue in faith that God got it right in the first place. That's our faith in Him, in other words. Love would mean, and that's agape in Greek, it's agape love, self-sacrificial love. That means honoring others above ourselves, including respecting the leadership of those who are in authority. and Not seeking for ourselves, but seeking for the benefit of others. And then finally, sanctity with self-restraint. It refers to living in holiness and in self-control, because ultimately the problems in this church stem from a lack of those things. The enemy can come against us anytime he wants, and you can't do much about that except pray but he can only gain a foothold inside you if you decide to give him that ground. Paul was asking women, don't give the enemy that chance. So what's the proper application of Paul's teaching in our circumstances today? Well, first, everything Paul said is broadly applicable today. Women may not publicly challenge the authority of men who lead the church. And since teaching is an implied expression of authority, women may not challenge the teaching of men in public. For the same reason, women may not teach men in a congregational gathering of any size. But we can also set reasonable limits on what Paul is saying. A woman could challenge a teacher, even a male teacher, or even the leader of a church if she does so privately, and assuming she does so respectfully. A woman could teach a man privately, as when a wife would teach her husband, for example, or when a woman author might teach a male student through a website or through a book, Or even one-on-one, if the circumstances could allow that to happen without any concerns about other issues. Privately, it's not a good idea for a man and woman to meet and teach if they're not already married. A woman could teach young men who are not yet deemed of age, such that they could join adult gatherings of men, whatever age you might set for that. In general, though, you could see those circumstances as being compatible with Paul's teaching. In all these cases, a woman is not usurping male leadership, nor is she disrupting the church or suggesting... That the roles of the church are wrong. And that's about as far as I would go in applying these today. Because as much as you can generalize these, the devil's in the details. And if you get into any specific situation, the test should not be so much on the literal words of a specific situation, but on the heart issues that underlie them. Having said that, I wouldn't go against the words that Paul specifically gives us here unless there's some very clear reason why it's justified. And every one of those situations needs careful scrutiny. So with that, we'll move into chapter 3. Chapter 3 is a totally different topic, but it's related, and I'll show you how. We'll start in chapter 3, verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectful, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, Or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So Paul is pivoting here, off of his discussion of women's roles in the assembly, to that of male leadership over the church. And it's a logical progression. Because Paul just taught the women to respect the role of men in leadership over the church. So now he's explaining the qualifications for men to fill those roles. And once more, he's positioning his teaching as a rebuke of false teachers. Because in this passage, Paul describes the ideal overseer, Who guides the church properly And he says this I think To counter the qualifications Of many of the false teachers To highlight their lack of suitability For the things that they seek His list here is quite long 16 requirements If you count them We're going to touch on all of them in turn Not all of them tonight But some of these items deserve a longer discussion Following this list Just scan down the page real quickly After verse 7 And you'll notice there's another list there That second list is a qualification of deacons. And the list of deacon requirements is quite different. It's less stringent than that of an overseer. But the mere fact that you have these two offices mentioned in this one chapter begs a question. Well, how many offices exist in the church? And how do they relate to one another? In our English Bibles, you're going to find a variety of titles used, especially depending on your translation. But in Greek, there are only three words used for positions of authority in the church the greek word for overseer is episkopos we get episcopal from it sometimes you see that translated as bishop in your english bible the second greek word is diakonos which is deacon later in this chapter the third word used in greek for leadership is presbyteros which is the word for elder it literally is translated gray-haired but we euphemistically know that it's referring to an elder as in an older person. In another of the pastoral epistles, Titus, Paul instructs Titus to appoint elders in every city. So that's an example of where you would see elders used. So you have episkopos, diakonos, and presbyteros as the three words in Greek for leaders in the church. If you do a quick analysis of these three words as they appear in the New Testament, it reveals their relationship. So let me summarize it for you. I don't want to go through a long side study. Let me just give you the summary of it. First, An episkopos, which is what we're studying here first tonight, the overseer, is anyone who leads the church in any capacity. The word is never used to describe a specific title or position. It's a general word. So an episkopos, an overseer, could be a pastor, could be an elder, or even another title that we haven't even invented yet. It's anyone that we assign authority to over the body in any capacity. That's an overseer. What Paul says about them here in this list would then come to apply for them. All episcopos have to meet these requirements. That would mean all elders have to meet these requirements. Speaking of an elder, an elder or presbyteros is a specific kind of overseer with responsibility for ensuring proper teaching, order, and discipline within the body of Christ. In the absence of apostles, elders are the highest authority in the church. We obviously have no more apostles on the earth. Elders become the highest authority in the church. Churches should be led... By a plurality of elders, not merely one. That serves to protect the many from the one and the one from himself. So we want plurality of elders. Also, elder is a role that comes alongside whatever spiritual gift or function a person performs in the body otherwise. So an elder could also serve the body with teaching or with pastoral gifts or with a service gift, but not necessarily Conversely, a certain spiritual gift does not automatically bestow eldership authority upon a person For example, someone with a pastoral gift who operates as a pastor shepherding in some fashion That does not automatically make that person an elder The only exception to that rule would be in cases where a church uses the term pastor to mean an overseer In which case that person is effectively an elder whether you're using the word or not So overseers are episcopos. Elders, presbyteros, are a specific kind of overseer, the ultimate authority in the church. After that, you have people who pastor. They teach. They do other things in leadership. Those people may or may not be presbyteros. They may or may not be leaders in the church. They may just be a servant in some lower capacity. Finally, the word deacon, deaconos, it's one who serves in ministry. It's literally a word for service. That word appears 29 times in the New Testament. Of those 29 times, it's translated as deacon, three times minister seven times but servant 19 times consequently the best definition of the duties of a dikonos is one who ministers to the church through their service they are mature members of the body they are assigned certain service responsibilities by elders or other overseers but they themselves are not overseers they carry no authority over the body apart from managing their own service or managing those who work under their direction In some church traditions, however, the governing group over the body is called the deacons. In such cases, those deacons are effectively operating as overseers, and so they should be thought of as elders, despite their title. We'll look at the qualifications of deacons later. So turning back to overseers, Episcopos, Paul opens in verse 1. He mentions that those aspiring to the role are doing a good work, a fine work. He mentions those aspiring probably because this was the desire of the false teachers. And we may even conclude that some of those who were false teachers were already in a role of eldership. That's a possibility. And Paul says, that's a good aspiration. Why is it good? Because it leads to a fine work. But here's the thing you have to notice. The fine work is the preparation of our character so that we can meet the tests of overseer. For example, if someone aspires to be a Nobel Prize winner... They are desiring a good work. They are desiring the good work of pursuing excellence. They are desiring the good work of distinguishing themselves among their peers, of advancing the body of knowledge in their field. That is the fine work they're seeking. You see, it's not having the position. It's the work that qualifies you for the position. Similarly, a person who desires to be an overseer is saying... They desire to pursue godly character. They desire a deep knowledge of scripture. They desire to have a testimony of faithfulness. And Paul says those are fine things to want. And in fact, everybody in the body of Christ is supposed to want those things. Everybody is supposed to pursue those things. No one is excused from those goals. It's just that only some people actually pursue them to the point of being a healthy model for the rest of us. And that's actually the irony. We talk so much about qualifications for leadership, forgetting that that's really just a standard for all of us to meet. As Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. But because some make it and others don't, we seek out those who are the best amongst us in that regard and elevate them as the model for the church, never mind the fact that they're also going to be more likely to succeed in the role and to do the best job. On the other hand, if a person merely desires the power and prestige of being called an overseer without desiring the character that must accompany the role, well, then they do not do well. And that was the case, I think, of the false teachers, or so it would appear, which may explain why Paul opens with this comment. You might imagine the false teachers more like Pharisees. They try to enter the fold by climbing over the wall instead of going through the door. They want it in the illegitimate way. They were seeking control for selfish reasons. Too often today, I think the church makes the mistake of looking past these qualifications because I think we don't promote or encourage people who want to seek for it in the right sense of it in the sense of producing the testimony that's necessary for it we prematurely elevate men into oversight roles whether we call them elder or pastor or whatever we call them we select men who haven't had time or opportunity to develop the proper knowledge or character or testimony and that trend is obviously a dangerous one for the church our leaders are there to guard us from ungodliness from deception and from disunity. But if they aren't even able to guard themselves from these things, then what will become of those who are under their care? Furthermore, the role of overseer includes serving as a model, as we said, to the rest of the congregation. So that means our leaders should be people, men, who we aspire to emulate. So clearly, the church should hold the role of overseer in high regard, and therefore we should assign that authority very carefully with a great deal of of thought and prayer. And in verse 1, still on that verse, Paul gives the very first requirement for overseer. That person must be a man. Notice Paul begins with the word man, and throughout the passage he repeats male pronouns and speaks specifically of husbands and fathers in that context. We know this is more than a simple generalization, as in mankind, for two reasons. First, the previous passage in chapter 2 made clear women cannot exercise authority over men. That settles it all by itself. But secondly, in the next passage we're going to study on deacons, Paul includes in that passage a specific discussion of women serving as deacons. For yes, women can serve as deacons. Therefore, we have to conclude that the absence of any discussion of women in this passage about overseers was intentional on Paul's part because there's no place for a woman in that role in the church. So we're talking about men. So men alone have the opportunity to serve in an overseer role. Remember, overseer is not a title. That's a general word for anyone who has authority in the church. Then in verse 2, Paul moves forward in his list of personal qualifications, and he begins with being above reproach. The word in Greek means to be blameless. This standard sounds impossibly high, right? But in reality, this is Paul's concession to the fact that only Christ could meet this list of requirements perfectly. Blamelessness is not sinlessness. Noah was called blameless, for example. It means that the person's life and words gives no cause for public accusation, for public reproach. Paul is acknowledging that perfection is not the expectation when he uses this word for blameless. He's saying that that we have to seek men who are not sinless, but blameless. That is, we shouldn't elevate men into leadership if they come with moral baggage. A bad track record should give us reasons for concern. It could mean they are not who they seem to be. And even if they've reformed their past ways, nevertheless, their past mistakes may follow them in unhelpful ways. And at the very least, their checkered past would be an unhealthy and unnecessary distraction for the church. So we have to select leaders whose life does not give cause for accusation. In the end, this is a judgment call. What is above reproach? Well, it's a matter of judgment. But like the old saying goes, you know it when you see it. Next, Paul says, the man must be husband of one wife. Paul loves controversy, apparently, or certainly we do. You could look at Paul's words here in at least four ways, and I don't normally try to cover the gamut of views because I prefer to just hit the one I think is accurate, but in this case, it's helpful to see the the views that are out there. First, someone could conclude from Paul's words that he's simply requiring overseers to be married that is, a single man is not qualified to serve as an overseer, you could make some good argument for why that might be a good practice, not the least of which would be temptation, but also because in that state of married life, the overseer is in the best position to minister to the widest audience within the church, knowing from personal experience what married life and family life requires. Furthermore, that was a Jewish requirement. Rabbis in the synagogue had to be married. Secondly, you could conclude that he's asking that overseers have been married only one time ever. That argument would take Paul's words hyper-literally and it's the most unlikely interpretation because it doesn't relate to any other biblical standard. For example, Scripture clearly allows remarriage in the case of the death of a spouse. So to say that Paul is ruling out that possibility for an overseer, that would seem inconsistent with Scripture and therefore I don't think that one is correct. But thirdly, Paul may have been insisting that overseers be monogamous, that is, married to only one woman at a time. In Eastern cultures, polygamy was common. It's still common in places in the world today. So a man with multiple wives who then became a believer would have entered into the church congregation bringing his multiple wives. He certainly would not have been asked to divorce them because he had become a believer. That doesn't make him more godly. He would have been faithful to the marriages he already had, and it would continue that way. But he could never be an overseer under those circumstances because his marriage was not the godly way to practice marriage. He was not a good example in that regard. Therefore, Paul was simply teaching that church leaders must model the correct form of marriage. Don't let polygamists be overseers. If that were the case, then it would be a very small matter for us today and not one we would commonly experience. Finally, we could interpret Paul to be teaching that a man must operate morally in marriage. That is, he must honor marriage as God intended to in all respects. So if he's unmarried, he must be morally upright and not engage in fornication. If he is married, he must not commit adultery or take multiple wives, which is adultery. He must not divorce. He must not marry a divorced person. These are simple rules of moral marriage from Scripture. It is my view that the final one is the truth, and not to exclude necessarily some of the other ones, like the idea earlier of multiple marriages, but all of that's incorporated into that fourth view, that marriage in a moral context is the goal. And therefore, I think Paul's teaching that, as in all areas of life, we want our overseers to model the ideal practices of our faith. We aren't saying that those who fail this test are less godly among us. Nor are we saying that men who fail these tests stand guilty or condemned any more than they would for any other sin. We all have the sin of our lives behind us, regardless of which ones they were. Paul is simply saying we want our leaders to stand as models of what's best and true and right without condemning those who can't meet those tests. And marriage is so important to the health of the family and to the church that we shouldn't elevate men whose testimony does not exemplify the ideal standard. Now, that requirement raises an interesting question. And the question is, how much accountability do we place on someone prior to coming to faith? Well, some would say life prior to faith is not relevant to the questions of qualification, since we all behaved in godless ways prior to faith. Who could meet any of the tests of overseer before they were a believer, right? After all, Paul himself was a murderer before he became the apostle. Others would argue that certain sins follow us in unhelpful ways, and that could compromise our ability to serve as a role model, like divorce, for example. But if you're expecting me to resolve this, I'm not, because there's really no simple answer to that question. There is no one who is an overseer who does not have a history that would have disqualified them if you take it into account. Name someone who was above reproach from birth. Not going to happen. So everyone has a degree of disqualification in their past, depending on how far back you want to go and which things you want to emphasize and yet men must take the role so we must give it to somebody so it becomes a matter of a judgment call we have to trust the holy spirit to lead us in these decisions one at a time can we accept someone as an elder for example who comes out of a divorce situation but that was a prior to faith experience perhaps if paul's a murderer could be accepted perhaps a person who has a divorce could be accepted on the other hand might that not be the wisest choice in a congregation where other men were available who had a testimony that didn't include that baggage and could serve in the role and we could dispense with that controversy in that case well then that might be a better choice you see no one has a right to the role no one has it coming and it doesn't say anything negative about those who don't have it it's just a matter of whether the church believes elevating this particular person whoever that may be is the spirits leading for them and their situation and the best representation they can offer both to the world and to the needs of the body And while we may excuse certain choices prior to faith, if those same behaviors continue after faith, well, then that's an entirely different story. We do expect people's lives to comport with the standard of Scripture after the point that they have the guiding of the Holy Spirit. And that's really who we're focused on, is those within the body who best exemplify what we believe as a result of coming to faith. Heavenly Father, give us wisdom in these things and guide our hearts against prejudice and against self-righteousness and piety, but also, Father, against fear, against uh, a lack of courage to make difficult decisions for the better of the the body. We want to do all that we do in love so that the body is edified, but we mostly want to do what you want, Father. That is to say, we want to please you before we please men. So I ask, Lord, that what we've learned would help guide us in these difficult decisions. If we are someone who is in a position to influence the decisions of leadership father i pray we would uh, be worthy of that honor and that responsibility by guiding uh, by letting our hearts be guided by scripture if we are someone who aspires to leadership father i pray that you would guide us in how to become the one who is uh, the best possible representative the best prepared because the di- the times are difficult for those who lead and for all of us father i pray that we would uh, we would, not, we would honor those that, that lead us and we would uh, not make things difficult for them, for that is not to our benefit in the long run, uh, but that we would support and pray for them and uh, that we would honor the order of things as you've created them. For we know, Father, that will lead to the best for us. We pray all these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.